created by Charles Dickens, named Ebenezer Scrooge. We all remember the story of Scrooge, don't we? That miserly old geezer who was so mean and nasty that he hoarded all his money, overworked his employees, and treated everyone with contempt. And then one Christmas Eve, his fitful sleep was interrupted by a series of ghostly visitors, the last of which was by far the scariest. For the so-called ghost of Christmas yet to come gave Scrooge a glimpse of his future, and it was not a pretty sight. He saw the end and the utter demise of his fortune and legacy. He saw people selling off his possessions and deriding his memory. Perhaps, worst of all, he saw his own tomb. This vision of utter ruin not only scared Mr. Scrooge, it motivated him to change his ways. For the very next morning, he awakened, bent on being a better person, shouting Merry Christmas to all and being unusually generous in hopes of avoiding the bitter end that he had seen. And sometimes, God takes a similar tack with us. He shows us a view of the end, a vision of what a sinful life can lead to. He gives us a glimpse of the demise of the wicked on that final day. And it's not a pretty picture. Keep this in mind as we read from our text today in James. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Let's take a look at what amounts to a frightful picture of the judgment of God. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted. Your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and silver has corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned. You have murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Weep and howl for the miseries coming upon you. To whom is he speaking? And what have they done to deserve such a sinister pronouncement? The text calls them rich. But they're not just any kind of rich. They're an affluent group of people who have accumulated wealth for themselves and let it go to waste. In short, 
They have accumulated lots of stuff, hoarded it, and not put it to good use. How do we know? Because of the way the text describes their possessions. Let's take a look. Verse 2 describes their garments as moth-eaten. Now, garments don't get eaten by moths when you wear them. Moths only have opportunity to munch on clothes while they are hanging unused in the dark in a forlorn closet. And then it says, your gold and your silver have corroded in verse 3. Similarly, wealth that is invested and put to good use does not have opportunity to corrode. It's too busy exchanging hands and being used to tarnish. No, the people whom James is talking about are a special kind of rich. They are a rich who are accumulating wealth for themselves and themselves alone. They're like that man in Jesus' parable who received the one talent, which, by the way, amounts to about $1 million in today's money. And that man took that million dollars and buried it instead of investing it. And what was the outcome for that particular guy? Matthew 25 tells us. Let's take a look. His master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I would have received my money with interest. Cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Sound familiar? Weeping and gnashing of teeth. What does our verse 1 say? Weep and howl, you rich. And at the end of verse 3, we have a clue as to the occasion of this pronouncement in James. This corrosion of your gold and silver will be evidence against you. Evidence is the language of the courtroom, the language of trial. This suggests that James 5, 1 through 6 is actually a pronouncement of judgment in a courtroom. These rich ones are being judged for their misuse of possessions, possessions that were on loan to them from God. And not only are they being judged, they're being sentenced. Notice how verse 3 ends. It says that your moth-eaten clothes and your corroded money will eat your flesh like fire. They're being sentenced to a fiery, flesh-eating existence. But doesn't that phrase sound familiar too? Didn't Jesus use similar language when he described hell as a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched? He said that in Mark 9, 48, for those of you taking notes. According to Jesus, hell is a place where flesh-eating worms do not die, and flesh-burning fire 
does not cease. These rich people are being judged, and they're being sentenced to a hellish existence with no way out. Unlike ever, everywhere else we've looked in James, this text is different because it makes no appeal for its subjects to repent. No, their deal has been sealed. Instead, James provides a picture of the judgment day, and he resorts to rather unpleasant language. On the, whole, on the surface, this whole thing sounds rather discouraging. Who wants to hear of people weeping and howling as a judge sentences them to a terrifying punishment? Why do this? What is the point of giving the readers of this letter a peek inside God's courtroom only to see him doling out pain and punishment? It's because pondering the judgment of God is a blessing in disguise. For it points us to the way of righteousness. Let me explain. Remember Mr. Scrooge from our opening illustration? What turned him from his path of doom? It was a gift of a vision, a vision of his very demise. When he finally saw the outcome of his selfish ways, terror gripped him, and he resolved to change. And so it is with our text. <clears throat> James shows us a picture of God's judgment to frighten us, to keep us from drifting off into sin and from suffering a similar fate. In essence, James is reciting a judgment oracle like the prophets of old. Just read through Jeremiah. Judgment everywhere. But he's doing it to warn us and to cultivate within us something we call the fear of the Lord. Now, the fear of the Lord is not often talked about in Christian circles. We prefer cozier concepts like the love of the, of the Lord, or the goodness of the Lord, or the kindness of the Lord. Fear denotes trembling and terror. How can a good and loving God be someone to fear? Well, the letter of James actually helps us understand. Remember this phrase that we looked at a couple of weeks ago in James 4.12? There is only one lawgiver and judge, speaking of God, he who is able to save and to destroy. You see, our loving, gracious, heavenly Father is also a judge who will not let the guilty go unpunished. If necessary, he will even destroy them. And as Hebrews declares similarly, in Hebrews 10.31, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And looking at the destruction of unrepentant sinners like these rich people in James can help us walk out our own salvation with fear and trembling. <clears throat> Do you see it now? Do you see how pondering the judgment of God can be a blessing in disguise? 
Because the fear of the Lord actually points us to the way of righteousness. It blesses us because it steers, <clears throat> excuse me, steers us clear of sin and points us back to the way of obedience. Rather than reaping the consequences of disobedience, namely weeping and howling for eternity, we have opportunity to submit to God now. Draw near to Him now and experience the freedom of His forgiveness and the power of His exaltation at present. But there is another blessing in disguise that our text in James affords us. Let's discover it together as we take a closer look at verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You see, this judgment oracle has a lot more to say. Apparently, these rich verses 1 through 3 have more crimes for which they're being punished. Not only have they failed to love God, the first great commandment, by misusing the money he gave them, they've also failed to break the second commandment of loving their neighbors, neighbors who are actually working for them. They are guilty of withholding their wages and defrauding laborers who routinely mowed their fields. Now the word mow there is a little misleading for us as these laborers didn't have cushy lawnmowers like we do today, riding around, sipping a beverage and listening to tunes on their, on their phones. No, they had to cut the fields with sickles and they had to gather the clippings of those sickles by hand over and over again all day long. This is back-breaking work. It went on from sunup to sundown. And after all the blood, sweat, and tears, to be defrauded of your wage? What a crime. What an injustice. From all appearances, these poor laborers were at the mercy of their wealthy masters. They had no one to come to their rescue. No one to right this terrible wrong. But wait, there actually is someone who hears. You see it there at the end of verse 4? The, their cries have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. The Lord hears. The same Lord who is the lawgiver and judge stands ready with a host of warriors at his command to right this wrong. Justice will be served because they have the vengeance of the Lord on their side. Here's the second blessing in disguise right here. The defrauded laborers have an advocate. God will avenge. God will bring justice. God will fight 
for them. And the oppressive landowners have no idea what's coming. Take a look at verse 5. Verse 5 likens these guys to, a li to livestock being fattened for slaughter as they proceed down their chosen path of self-indulgent luxury and oppression. They are totally oblivious of the end game. They have no idea that they're headed for the slaughterhouse of the Lord. They have no idea that God will make them pay with their very lives for eternity. So how is the vengeance of God a blessing for us? Well, consider this. Whenever we are wronged, whenever we experience injustice, we have an avenger. We have one who will execute justice for us, but at the proper time. And he will do it justly. He will do it righteously. In fact, he's the only one who can execute justice rightly and justly. We humans make for horrible avengers. When we experience injustice, we get angry. We fight back. We wage war. In general, we make things worse. We just pour gas on the inferno of injustice. Just look at our culture today. Talk of injustice is the rage. And just what do the, those decrying injustice do? Perpetrate further injustice. This is precisely why Paul in Romans 12, 10 tells us to never avenge ourselves, but to leave room for the vengeance of God. Because we are not in a position to execute justice rightly. It is not our place. But there is one who can and does execute justice the right way. The Lord of hosts. And we have his ear. So how should we respond in light of this good news? In short, with patience. The vengeance of the Lord encourages us to be patient. Now next week's text begins with these words. Be patient therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. And then it proceeds to encourage us to patiently wait for our, our avenger. But I'll leave that exposition for next week. But in our text today, we actually have a little hint at that ourselves in the final verse, in verse 6. Because verse 6 is a little unusual. Because it speaks of a righteous person who endured even greater injustice. Notice it's singular, righteous person. We were talking about plural rich, plural laborers. In verse 7, we're going to be talking about brothers, plural, plural, plural. And then in this verse 6, there's this singular righteous person. And this particular person, according to this text, says he's being condemned and murdered. You have murdered the righteous person. That's pretty strong language. 
But actually, it isn't the crime of murder that makes this verse remarkable. Rather, it is the simple response of the man being murdered. James states it rather simply. He does not resist you. Period. As an example of how to respond while being murdered, James points to a man who did not resist his assailants. He did not retaliate. Rather, he waited for the avenger, the Lord Almighty. What remarkable patience. What remarkable trust in the Lord. Now, who was this righteous person who did not resist his own condemnation and murder? We can only speculate who James had, had in mind. But whoever he was, if it was a recent martyr in the church like Stephen, whoever he was, that particular martyr was only following the example of another even more righteous one who preceded him, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the death of Jesus Christ was in many ways a murder. He was betrayed by a close friend. He was falsely accused during an illegally assembled late-night trial and that could produce no evidence against him. And he was executed by a cowardly governor who could not come up with a single reason to put him to death, but then yielded to the pressure of an angry mob. Yes, Christ's death was an utter travesty of justice. But even so, Jesus did not resist. It is not as if he couldn't have resisted. For shortly before his murder, he had this to say in Matthew 26, verses 53 and 54. Listen to this. This is Jesus speaking. Do you not think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Suggesting that he didn't do that. You see, Jesus had the avenger, the avenger, his father, at his disposal. But rather than appeal for him to stop the injustice, he let it proceed. For as Isaiah foresaw this moment, hundreds of years before it happened, he was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Like a sheep that is before its shearers silent. So he opened not his mouth. And later on in the same text, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. You see, this particular judgment of God is our biggest Blessing in disguise. The outright murder of the righteous one. 
the murder of the righteous one called Jesus Christ, and God's decision, and Jesus' decision not to resist being murdered, or God's decision not to prevent it. That is the true way of righteousness. For the avenger-in-chief, God the Father, vindicated his son three days after his murder, raises him from the dead, and throned him in the heavens. <clears throat> Where he remains seated to this day, extending forgiveness and righteousness to everyone who calls upon him, and to everyone who wholeheartedly trusts in him, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given by, among men by which we must be saved. That makes him the ultimate blessing in disguise. Father, we come to you and we are so grateful that you are our avenger. That you hear our cries of injustice. And you stand ready to execute justice at some point in the future. And you also have blessed us with these visions of your avenging the sin of wicked men as a gift to us to steer us away from sin, to keep us on the path of righteousness, and to keep us trusting in the one righteous one who saved us from that day by taking our sin upon him, taking the just punishment that we deserved. We thank you that you did that and you opened our eyes to see the beauty of that gave us the faith to cry out to you and to look to Jesus and to receive his righteousness forever. Amen.